Thank you all for being here. I, uh, I changed my message kind of last minute, so if you'll bear with me this morning. We're going to be in Second uh, Samuel. We're going to be on hold from our First Corinthians study. I hope you've been enjoying that as we've been going through uh, verse by verse of First Corinthians and uh, just so many practical helps and uh, I think in the day and age we live in, uh, needful helps uh, as we look at our, our church and uh, church culture and uh, making sure that we're doing things biblically and, ta- and heeding corrections that God might have uh, for his church. But uh, I was kind of thinking and chewing on, uh, on some thoughts about David and his mighty men. And I uh, thought I would uh, talk on these men for just, uh, just uh, a little while this morning as we, uh, as we look at uh, some examples. I think there's some great parallels on some things that they did physically and some things that we ought to battle in our Christian life. And uh, so those of you who are in Sunday school, sorry, I'm talking a lot about battling and warring today, but, um, but hang in there. Uh, we've been called to battle. Amen. And I think about all the things that are going on in our society, things that are going on uh, uh, political, uh, politically, socially, uh, various things in our life. And I'm not one of those. I'm not, I don't think that the church's job primarily is to be social justice warriors or anything like that. But I will say this, that politics are going to reflect the nation. And God has instructed uh, believers, the Word of God, His churches, uh, we should be impacting our culture. And I think in many ways we're not. And I think, uh, I think a big part of it is Christians have stopped letting the light shine. We've put it under a bushel. And uh, so we can, we can shine and we can shout when we're inside these walls, but, uh, but uh, you know, we kind of want to blend in out there. You, you know the expression, it's a biblical expression about the wolves in sheep's clothing. I think we've gotten good at being sheep in wolves' clothing. Got to blend in with the world. We'll blend with uh, those out there. But inside, I'm really a sheep. And... Uh, and we need to be challenged from time to time to just kind of have a boldness for our children's sake, for our nation's sake. What am I passing on? And, and are my children, will they be prepared? Will they be equipped to stand for what they believe in, stand for the faith, stand for the truth? And um, as the song said, we just, we just need a few good men and a few good women. Uh, and what we mean by that are some godly men, godly women. They're going to take God at his word, uh, men and women of faith, and say, God, what would you have me to do? And so, if you have your place there, 2 Samuel 23, look at verse number 8. And we'll uh, come across a few uh, difficult names, and so uh, uh, bear with me as I stumble through them. But in 2 Samuel 23, did I not give you the reference this morning? All right, here, page is turning. Let me give you a second turn there. 2 Samuel 23, and uh, verse number 8. These be the names of the mighty men David had. The, the Tecumenite um, that, that sat at the seat, chief among the captains, he was Adino, the Esnite. Uh, he lifted up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoahite, one of the three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines that were there gathered together to battle, the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand claved to the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. And after him he saw Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop, where was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. And he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. The Lord wrought a great victory. And three of the thirty chief uh, went down and came to David in the harvest time unto the cave Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of uh, uh, Repham. And David's, uh, David was there, in an hold and garrison in the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink to, uh, of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate. And the three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem and was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. 
And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the man, of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of uh, Zeruah, the chief among the three, and he lifted up his spear against three hundred and slew them, and had the name among the three. Uh, um, yeah, verse 19. And he, uh, uh, was he not most honorable of the three? Therefore he was the captain, howbeit he attained not to the first three. And Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man, a, uh, of Je- Jebezel, uh, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit uh, in time of snow. And he slew an Egyptian, a, go- a goodly man, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear." These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, uh, and had the name among the three mighty men. And uh, we'll go ahead and just stop right there and ask God's blessing this morning. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we look to this passage of Scripture, and no doubt a historical text, uh, but with some spiritual value. And Lord, I pray that we would not look at this just as an exciting story of great victory that you, that you accomplished, but... Uh, but that we look at our own lives and see that you've called us to do war. Not a physical war, not a flesh and blood, but, but a war of principle, a war of truth. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to stand, to know how to stand, and that you'd prepare us for the battles that are ahead. Lord, would you help us now in these moments, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, at this time of uh, Veterans Day, I, I think about... Um, Think about so many that, uh, that have answered the call and, uh, and sacrificed and put their lives on the line. And, and really, what is, a, what is a veteran but someone who gave the government a blank check of their life, willing to put it on the line? And, uh, you know, the, the, the adage, um, uh, uh, all gave some, but some gave all. And, uh, and for, for the veteran, that is definitely true. I, uh, I got to have lunch with a friend this last week, and uh, we served together in Iraq uh, many years ago, about 15, 16 years ago, and, and uh, I was, uh, uh, played a part in leading him to Christ, and it was awesome just reconnecting and hearing his testimony again, and, and um, but we were talking about some of the brothers that we served with that, that fell in battle, and uh, I remember just, we were just getting a little choked up, reminiscing a little bit about some of these, these folks. But you know what we all have in common is we're willing to answer the call. Wherever, wherever we're sent, we're ready, we're willing. And there's so many parallels of a loyal soldier to the soldier in the Lord's army and, and the loyalty to their commander and the loyalty to, to the calling that God has placed in our life. And I want to challenge us with this thought that the moment you got saved, uh, guess what? You were placed on the side. And, uh, and you, know, you don't have to go and purposefully list you're in the battle. You're in the war, and whether you choose to battle or not, the war is coming to you. You can't be like the one that decided not to get involved in the Civil War, and he thought, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to wear, uh, I'm gonna wear the top half of the Union soldiers, and I'm going to wear the bottom half of, uh, of, the, of the South, and, uh, and, uh, and that'll kind of show that I'm kind of neutral. When they found his body... They found the top half full of southern bullets and the bottom half full of northern bullets. And uh, uh, what I'm saying is this, the battle's coming. The battle's there. The devil has his eyes fixed on you. This is the reality of the spiritual war that you and I are in. So what do we do? We must equip ourselves. We must prepare ourselves because the battle's inevitable. And the battle is coming. There is a battle raging, a battle for your soul. And we must fight. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a great captain. You have a great commander. And we must, we must take up our instructions, our marching orders, and we must be vigilant in our training. And we must be prepared until the day of battle. And, uh, and it's a matter of faith, and it's a matter of battling. And, you know, uh, back in verse number 8 again in our text here, it says that these are the names of the mighty men David had. These guys had a testimony, a, a calling, that they were mighty men. And I want to say, whenever God raises up uh, a man to do a work, someone to do a work, in this case, the man that God was going to use was a man named David. God will raise up mighty men to help in that work. 
You know, it's amazing how many stories through history we hear of great generals of the past. We hear of great victories that were done. But did you know it's not that one individual that wrought the victory? You know, he had a command. He had people under him, people whose names we'll never know. I think about when I got to visit Arlington uh, a couple years ago. Go visit the, the tomb of the unknown soldier. And uh, representing all those who gave their, their lives. And, and we don't even know their names. We don't even know who they are. And, and even all those, uh, those grave markers that were across the acreage there. Uh, I don't know their story. I don't know who these folks are. But I know many of them paid a price uh, for, for some things that I get to enjoy today. And, uh, you know, and, and many times it's not about notoriety. It's not about fame. In fact, these individuals, even in this text, though they did some tremendous things... They're still kind of unknown, except for those that really like to dig in and say, what did they do? We'll read through their name. Oh, I've heard a couple of those. I've heard of, uh, uh, you know, some of those names might stand out a little bit, but, but not all of them. And you think, but what was their purpose? Well, their purpose was to join up with David. These mighty men went with David, not knowing how they'd be fed, not knowing if they'd ever get paid, leaving family behind because they had a great calling. They had a great cause that they were fighting for. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 11, verse 9 and 10, So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. These also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom. They, they were with David. They strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom. And all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. See, these men were mighty men of valor. They were mighty men of faith. They believed David's hand was on, or God's hand rather, was on David as the anointed next king of Israel, and they joined up with that. They didn't wait till he was king. They joined up with him early on. They said, we're going to be with you, and we, we recognize God's hand on you, and we want to we be a part of that. So these were men of faith. Sometimes we look at these guys. They were warriors. They couldn't have been men of faith. You know, when we think today, we think of special forces, or maybe we've seen some movies and things. You don't think of these guys as necessarily spiritual men. You know, in fact, many times the movies that are coming out, they're so, they're so vulgar because they're trying to get you the reality of what war is like. Uh, you know, there's nothing but profanity the whole time. You can't even watch it. And uh, these were men of faith. These were men that believed God's hand was on David, you know. And, uh, you know, I think of uh, one of the men that we tend to downplay that God used. Uh, he was one of Israel's judges, a man by the name of Samson. Now, Samson, we love to point out all his failures and all his faults, yet he was a judge that God used for his purpose. And uh, what I'm saying is they, they, they recognized something, the anointed power of God. They were not afraid to risk, to sacrifice. They had offered their lives on the altar of the king. Why would you do that? They loved their king. They had a great loyalty for their king. They believed in the cause. They believed in the one whom they followed. These mighty men, they showed us what, a, what proper, uh, um, uh, they, they, they showed us what a proper relationship ought to be with the Lord as his followers and his soldiers. Of course, you and I, we have a king, a king of kings that we follow. We have uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who, who, uh, who through his spirit indwells in us and, and, uh, and, and, and guides us. He's given us the word of God as direction and the source of all truth. And, and as, we, as we go forward in this battle, in this life, uh, what are we motivated by? What is our motivation? Our king. We love him. We want to please him. Paul challenged Timothy and he said, uh, uh, challenged him to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now why would he be challenged to do that? Of all the things, Timothy was a preacher. And he said, now, Timothy, I want you to understand something. You need to take on this charge of being a soldier. Well, what is a soldier? A soldier is willing to lay down his life. A soldier is willing to sacrifice. And he said this to him. He said, no man that warreth, no man that goes to battle, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who has called him to be a soldier. So what happens? Well, in battle, we get too caught up with the affairs of this life. And we're worthless as a soldier. When I was in Iraq, several of our guys were, um, this was a lot of years ago, so I'm telling you my, my, my version of my Vietnam story, okay? And uh, <laughs> uh, when I was in Iraq, several of our soldiers were dealing with a lot, of, uh, a lot of issues back home. There were health issues that came up. There was infidelity issues that came up. All these different issues, heartbreaking issues. And the reality was, many times at no fault to the soldier, they... Uh, they were kind of worthless. 
We couldn't send them out on the sensitive missions. We couldn't send them out on the things where someone's life might be on the line. Why? Because their mind was back home. And so, so, so Paul is instructing him, and he said, if you're going to war, you can't be entangled with the affairs of this life. Why? That you may please him who has call, called you to be a soldier. And, and the reality is there are so many things in life that are just pulling us this way and pulling us that way, and, and, uh, and we lose sight. And, and as believers, we start to, we start to kind of uh, allow, uh, as we've been going through Corinthians on Sunday mornings, we kind of start to allow Corinth to slip in. We kind of allow the, 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 the value systems of the world around us and the, the things that the world is after and the, the philosophies of the world. They all start kind of creeping in. And what do we start doing? We start kind of softening our convictions and we kind of start trying to match them up somehow. Well, maybe it's not as urgent as I was thinking. Maybe it's not as serious as I originally thought. And, and we start to fall into the trap like Demas fell into when he was traveling with Paul. When Paul said those probably very painful words for him to share, Demas, who I invested in, Demas, who I love, Demas, have forsaken me, having loved this present world. He, he, he just wanted to live for the here and now, and he just couldn't see it as a worthy cause to sacrifice it all for a king, for his king, for the one who had saved him, called him out of darkness into his marvelous light. The one who called you out of darkness, why would you want to go back to the darkness? And he goes back to that life and how many fall into that trap? Each of these mighty men, they stood out. Uh, they, each of these mighty men and their, their exploits had a spiritual lesson, I believe, to teach us. And I'm going to go through these just quickly, a, a few of them. Uh, the first one um, is uh, Adino that I want to go out to. Verse number 8 in our text, 2 Samuel 23, verse number 8. And these be the mighty men, David, the, uh, the, the Tecumenite, that sat at the seat chief among the captains, the same was Adino, the Esnite. What did he do? He lifted up his spear against 800, whom he slew at one time. <laughs> I want to see that story. Okay. I don't know if you've read some of these and thought, what did that look like? You know, I feel like Hollywood's got nothing on the Bible. Right? And, uh, you know, when we get to heaven, I sure hope there's a viewing room and be like, how did this play out? One man took on 800 people with a spear. I would say that's a mighty man. Who wants to mess with this guy, okay? Um, it's interesting. He was outnumbered. He was outweaponed, I'm sure. I mean, these probably weren't arm, unarmed men coming after him. Uh, they probably had swords. They probably had spears themselves. How did one man with a spear defeat 800 men at one time? What kind of a man was this guy? He's a man that didn't give up when he was outnumbered. Folks, I'm hearing so much talk today uh, about how we are just so outnumbered and we are so defeated. Look at our country's too far gone. Look what's happening in the White House. They don't even know what's happening in the White House. And <laughs> all this stuff is going on. We're thinking we're defeated. We're overcome. Uh, what are we going to do? Let me just say this. Us plus God is always majority. We lose sight of that. Let me remind you of something. By the way, we are in a history book right now, 2 Samuel. This is history. And as we're studying history, we think, what does this have to do with us? Okay, it's the history of David, his mighty men, all these kinds of things. The Bible says that things written aforetime written for our learning and admonition, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. When we look at this, we see this guy outnumbered by 800 to 1. God says, I'm, so I'm trying to give you some hope here. Some hope. I love to hold on to the thought that the majority of America still is moral. We talk about this moral majority. Where are they? How could that be the case when it seems like America is in a moral freefall? It feels like we're outnumbered. I fear for our children. What kind of world are they coming into? And I've talked with some young couples, and they're like, I don't know if I want to have kids. And, and, uh, and I say, well, you go in the direction of your fear. Trust God. This is a matter of faith. We're obeying the Lord. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. By the way, just on that note, you know who sees having children as a strategy? The Muslims. They're averaging like 10 kids per family. And they just know it's a waiting game. If they, if they just wait a generation, two generations, they'll outnumber wherever they're at. That's their strategy. It's the long game. 
And I'm afraid sometimes we believers are getting so caught up chasing careers, chasing dreams, chasing all these things that we're buying into the mindset, no, 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 no. Here's what the world's telling you. Have your 1.2 children. Keep up with the Joneses. So much so that Christians even start to buy into this thing where we criticize families with big families. The Bible talks about how, how uh, um, uh, the, uh, the fruit, uh, um, uh, what is it? I think of it. the verse that I have memorized just left me um, about having children. Blessed is the man that has a quiver full of them. He says the fruit of the womb is his reward. There's a great blessing in having children. God has called us to be fruitful, multiply. And I'm way off from what I'm ta- meant to preach on this morning. But, but this was, you know, get, uh, you know, we think uh, we're complaining that all the ungodly people are taking over. Well, guess what? They're also reproducing. And you know what? The first, the first responsibility you have in this world is your children and bringing them to Christ and growing and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If we just saw that as a ministry, we could make a difference. Beyond that, then we start influencing others and discipling others and bringing others along as we win them to Christ and we mentor and we disciple. And, and you know, this is kind of some of the framework we're trying to uh, consider with our, with our own church. How are we doing with this mentorship and how are we doing with bringing others along, growing in the Lord? And, and we're, we're constantly kind of checking this. Are we doing a good job with this? But, but um, you know, in our community, in our sphere of influence, but I just want to remind us and encourage us, we take a heart to this, that here's one guy against 800 people people, and, and God says, I've got something to encourage you about. Uh, this guy didn't quit when he was outnumbered. He had a purpose. He had a cause. He had a God, and he stuck with it. Also, he was a man of courage. He didn't turn and run. Sometimes we get caught in the paralysis of analysis. I'm overthinking this thing too much, and, uh, and look at the numbers just don't add up. This is impossible. And then so we duck and run. His courage and his strength came from God, though. I believe that today as a soldier of our king, our strength ought to come from God. Uh, we, ought, we, ought to, we ought to realize that it's he that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's the grace of God. That's him actively working in your life. Faithful is he that has called you who will also do it. He is the one that does it. We just, we, we just step in. I love the, the passage when Abraham sent his, uh, his servant out to, um, uh, to find a bride for his son. And, uh, and it was this just impossible task when you really analyze all the, ver- all the factors, all the variables. And he goes out and he finds the bride for his son, uh, for, for his master's son. And here's a, a passage in scripture that says this, I being in the way, the Lord led me. In other words, I just got in the way that God had had me to go. And what happened? He began to le- lead one foot in front of the other. Listen, you can't change the direction of a parked car. You can turn the steering wheel all the way to the right, all the way to the left, and it's still facing the same direction. It's only once that car gets moving that steering wheel can turn, and it changes the direction of the car. And sometimes God just wants to get us going, and let's, let's get in this direction. Watch how I'm going to lead you, and watch how I'm going to guide you and direct you. And so, so as we come, we enter this battle. We must be spirit-filled. We must be committed Christians. Our enemy... Uh, our enemies are spiritual enemies. This is a spiritual battle. We do battle against Satan. We do battle against his ranks. So we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. What's left? <laughs> well, I'm not wrestling against stuff. I'm wrestling against principalities and powers and, and it rules the darkness of this world. You think, this is getting a little spooky, preacher. Uh, this is our battle. There is a tempter. There is an enemy. There is, uh, uh, he's trying to pull us and he wars with our minds. He wars with our emotions. The battle is in the soul, the mind, the emotions, and the will of man. And he's trying to pull us. We can often feel so outnumbered. I think about uh, 1 Kings 19, 13, and 14, and about Elijah. Elijah had that great victory uh, against the, the prophets of Baal, and he's on the run, and he's depressed. And it says, And behold, came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They've thrown down thine altars. They've slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Here's what, what he was saying. He said, I've been very jealous. I've been, been very zealous for my God. Trying to defend God's name, trying to stand up for his God. He just took on 400 false prophets. And he's, to this point, he's depressed. He's like, no one's left. He said, 
I'm the only one defending God's name. They're, they're, they're killing the prophets. They're forsaking God's commandments. They're, 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 you know, what prophets are left are false prophets going different directions. And uh, they, they've, they, they've torn down the altars, the places of worship, if you would. And I'm the only one that's left. You know, sometimes it can really feel that way. I look around, I see the culture of Christianity, I see the things that are coming out of pulpits, and I see the, the things that are propagated, and I think, is there anybody left willing to stand on, you know, we sing that song with the kids, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, is there any simple man that's just going to take God at his word and say, if God says it, that settles it? How many of you have seen that bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? God's word stands whether you believe it or not. Don't think so highly of yourself. <laughs> it's God's word. It stands. We all right this morning? All right. I got an extra hour of sleep. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> we see the second guy, Eleazar. He's a man with a sword. Verse number nine. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoahite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together into battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and he smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave to the sword and the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him unto the spoil. He brought a great victory. He fought so hard his hand clave to the sword. It says in First, uh, first Chronicles 11, uh, verse 12 to 14, and after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodah, the Hoahite, who was one of the three mightiest, or mighties. He was with David at Pasdamin. And there, was, uh, the, and there the Philistines were gathered together to battle, and there was a parcel of ground full of barley. And the people fled from before the Philistines, and they set themselves in the midst of that parcel and delivered it and slew the Philistines. The Lord saved them by a great deliverance. Just a little bit more detail that are there, and they fought in this field. And, um, but it says there was a great deliverance. This man fought, and he fought so hard that by the end, his hand, the Bible said, clave to the sword. It became one with the sword. You ever held on to something so tight, and then all of a sudden you couldn't like, peel your fingers off of it? Like, ah. My wife and I, we, uh, we went on a vacation several years ago, and we did this off-road tours. And we had these little, uh, little dune buggy cars, and it just rained, and, and uh, it, was just, it was a rough road. And the steering wheel was like eight inches, and no power steering. So you hit a rock or a bump, it threw you. So I'm fighting this thing, and I'll tell you what, I had blisters, and my hands, my fingers were so sore, and I, I claved to that steering wheel. I was one with the steering wheel, okay? And uh, here's this man. Eleazar, and, uh, and he's fighting this great battle. It gets to the point he's weary. They just keep coming, and he cleaves to that sword. And I almost wonder if he got to the point where he got so tired that he just kind of gave up, and he just kind of collapsed on the ground with that sword up, and God just started pushing his enemies on that sword. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he just, he claved to the sword, and God wrought. And notice what it said. God wrought a great victory. He was one with his sword. You know, today we have a sword. Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You and I have a sword, a double-edged sword. And what does it do? It cuts right through. It's an offensive weapon. It's also a defensive weapon. And then the more we know the word of God, the more it prepares us for battle, the more we understand we need to be expert swordsmen. Do you know why they send soldiers to the range, like, all the time? So they get good. So it's like second nature, right? And uh, I know some of you Air Force can't relate to that, but we'd, we'd go down to the range all the time, in the rain, in the snow, 20 below, and, uh, and we'd, uh, you know, we get confident in our weapon, we get very efficient in our weapon, but the idea is it's second nature. I don't even have to think about it. Uh, you know, we have these acronyms to remember, you know, uh, how to breathe, how to squeeze, and how to, uh, the trigger, and how to do all these things. But it got to the point, I never thought about it. I did it, and there's the target, boom, and, and next one, boom. And, and we don't think about it. We just, we just react. We do it. That's how God wants to get us to get with our weapon. Proficient. We know uh, what, what, what happens when the enemy pops up, when there's a situation that pops up, we know exactly how to react. We know exactly how to face this thing. I think about Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. Every time, every time the devil shows up to tempt, he pulls out that sword. I don't remember that part. Oh, he pulls it out, and he clobbers the devil. 
You have to refresh our memory. Satan comes along. Jesus, you haven't eaten in 40 days. Why don't you turn this bread or this stone into bread? He pulls out that sword. It is written. What happens? The devil goes away. Comes back again. You know, why don't you just throw yourself off the, the pinnacle here of the temple? Uh, you know, the, the Bible says that he'll give his angels charge over you and you're not going to fall down and go splat. Pulls out that sword. It is written. What is he doing? He's using the sword. He knows exactly how to resist temptation. And he gave us the blueprint. He shows us what to do with this. He became very proficient. He claved to the sword. Ephesians 6, uh, 17. And take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have a sword, and it is a sufficient sword. The greatest weapon we have is this book, folks. Thirdly, I see Shema. He stood when others fled. Look at verse number 11. And after him was Shema, uh, the son of Agi, the Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. The Lord wrought a great victory. Who wrought the great victory? The Lord did. So we don't forget this. He risked his life, folks, to save a pea patch. A patch of lentils. Some beans. He risks like when others fled. You think, why would you stay? You know what he was doing? He was being faithful in the little things. I am responsible for this patch. I'm responsible for this ground. He, he wasn't affected by what everyone else did. Well, this isn't worth fighting for. This isn't worth staying for. And he stayed. I'm going to fight. This is what I'm stewarding over. This is what I have. It may not be much, but it is mine. And folks, God has given us some things to steward. It may not be much, but that's yours. And you're to steward that. You're to steward those little hearts that God has entrusted you with. You're to steward this life that God has given you. And you've got to fight, even when it seems insignificant. This was only a patch of beans, and he stayed. We know that belonged to the king, and it was under his care. The enemies of his king were coming to rob and to plunder it, and uh, the king's honor was at stake, and the people needed the food. What are you, what are you fighting for? Your life. You know, well, don't you understand, you know, your church is small and insignificant. Don't you understand, you're just, you're just one person among many. Don't you understand, God doesn't do these things anymore. That one's one of my favorites. God doesn't do that anymore. Those revivals we read about, those are so long ago. This is the king's land. How many of you are familiar with the Battle of the Alamo? When you look at this place, this little rundown ruin, it's the strangest story why they would stay and defend this little property. And they'd fight all odds against them. I mean, people lost their lives. It was horrendous. But you know, the story of the Alamo inspired many, many other soldiers. They were able to go on and win a victory. You know, sometimes we may not see, what's the significance of this? How is that even worth anything? I, I read of stories. I think of one, one uh, missionary of old. He, he uh, came from a very wealthy family, and uh, he had to renounce his, his, his riches, and so he can just go trust God. And he, and he turned from that, and, and uh, you know, he said, I'm not going to have any reserves. I'm, I'm cutting all my ties. I'm cutting all my attachments. And, and, he, and he took passage. Back then, he could only travel by ship. And, and he was going across the ocean. And, and somewhere along the way, he got really sick, and he died. He never even made it to where he felt called to be a missionary to. You think, what a waste. Here's a guy that had so much potential, and his family wanted to pass over the family business, and he could have had riches. He could have enjoyed all the pleasures of this world, and he left it all. They found his Bible later on, and he'd written in the cover, No Reserves. No retreat and no regrets. When they preached his funeral, several, several other young men surrendered to go into the ministry and go to the mission field. You think, what a waste. God knows what he's doing. Remember, our, our fight is not physical, Ephesians 6. 10 through 12, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. What else do we know of these uh, three mighty men? Look at verse number uh, 13, the, the group of three. And three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest in the harvest time into a cave at Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Repaim. And David was then in an hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the waters of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it thereof, but poured out unto the Lord. We'll just pause there for the sake of time. But this was an interesting story. These three. Here's a question asked. Were they commanded by David to go get water? No. Was it, were they compelled by duty to go get water? No. They didn't make him a good soldier or a bad soldier. It was not part of their job description to go get water for the king. They weren't water boys. But you know what? They loved the king. I, I almost see it was like this, because the Bible just says David just longed for it. I almost, I almost wonder, you know, they're there in the cave. They're resting time, if you would, evening. They're recharging. They're sharpening their swords, and they're just kind of doing the things you do in the evening, and they're winding down. Maybe they're around a campfire, and David's, David's just sitting there thinking. He's been on the run. He's living in caves. Exciting life. And he's like, man, I remember how refreshing the water was from that well in Bethlehem. Oh, one day I'm going to get another glass of that water. It's going to be so good. He's just sitting there thinking to himself. The ones that are near the king lean over to the other two, and he says, did you guys hear that? I found something that would be a blessing to the king. Well, what is it? They've been battling all day probably that day, and here they are in the evening, and they're just kind of settling in. And he says, there's something. What is it? David wants some of the water from that well. Oh, we can do that. You guys want to do it? You in? And I can see this little, little, this little black op forming, right? And they're like, we're going to do this. This is off the books. Nobody knows about it. We're just going to go. They go through, and the Bible says they broke through. They broke. What does that mean? They had to do some fighting. There was some bloodshed probably. And they break through. They go to that well. They pull up some water. And they make it back without spilling it. And they bring it all the way back to David with sweat flying down, blood dripping off their swords. And he's saying, why are you being so graphic? Because this was war. <laughs> and, and they give it to David and he said, I can't believe you guys just did this. This, this. this water is so valuable, I can't drink it. The only thing this water is worthy of is as a sacrifice and an offering to God. Isn't that amazing? And so he turns it into an act of worship. By the way, the men saw this. You say, well, the, you know, soldiers, these special forces here, they're, they're definitely not men of God. David was leading them. They prayed. They had to have been part of his, his in the evening time when they'd pull out his harp. They'd have a little worship time. And he worships God with this cup of water. But here's what happened. They love David so much, they're willing to risk their own lives for something so insignificant as a cup of water. It's interesting, and Jesus says, if anyone gives a cup of water in my name to one of these little ones, just a cup of water, something so insignificant, why would they do this? They love David. Let me move on. You know, there are three classes of these men who came to David in his, uh, uh, when he was being rejected as king. Look, at, uh, look back at chapter, for, uh, actually it's two chapters. You don't need to turn there, I'll just, I'll just read it. First Samuel 22, 1 and 2, it says this. David therefore departed thence and escaped the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. Now get this. The, so, so this is the same cave that he was in in 2 Samuel here. As he's reminiscing, looking back. And it says that, that they came to him. Here's the ones that came to him. Everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was, uh, that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them. And there were with men. This was the biggest band of misfits you can imagine. 
There are people that were, uh, they, they were distressed. Why were they distressed? They were persecuted by Saul. Uh, these men were in debt. Those that were in debt, if you could not pay, you could be sold into slavery, a debtor's prison, until it's all paid off. They were running for their lives. These were people that were uh, discontented. They were just simply unhappy with what life had for them. I'm just not happy. I'm just not fulfilling. I'm not finding. There's, there's like a hole in here. And you know the reality is, every one of us, when we came to Christ, spiritually, we fell into one of those categories. There's just something. I don't have the answer. I can't figure it out. And then when I look to the Word of God, what did it do? It exposed me. It showed me that I am lost. I am undone. I am in need of a Savior. I am lost in my sin, for the wages of sin is death. And I look at this, I say, I am indebted to a holy and righteous God. And what's going to happen if I don't get this fixed? And then I look and I say, how do I get this fixed? Well, you can't, buddy. It's not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. How do I achieve this mercy? Uh, uh, the Bible says, for by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing I can do to make it right. So God sending his son steps in, does it for me, that me by faith in him uh, can have everlasting life. He pardons me of my sin, uh, places it on the acceptable sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He places it on that. And I get to have the righteousness of God imputed into me. I'll tell you what, there's a king worth following. There's a king worth dying for. There's a king worth living for. What a king. This is the group of, a ragtag group that came to be with David. I think of Abishai, he's one of my favorite. I don't know if we'll get through all these. We'll, I'll find a good stopping point here. Abishai. Look at verse number 18. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, chief among the three, he lifted up his spear against 300 and slew them and had the name among the three. This guy, not 800, but I'll tell you what, 300 is pretty impressive. He slew 300 with a spear. Abishai was the guy that when uh, uh, they're walking through town and one guy starts mocking David, Abishai's like, hey David, you want me to take his head off? <laughs> I mean, that's just the guy Abishai is. And the um, Bible says that he was most honorable he was the one who would do anything for his king, always by his side, always ready to defend him. In 2 Samuel 16, I love this passage. It says this in verse 5. And when King David saw Behurim, uh, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was uh, Shimei, the son of Geri. He came forth and cursed st uh, still as he came, and he cast stones at David. Oh, this was that passage. And, um, uh, and uh, it says, And all the people, the mighty men, were at his right hand and at his left. And thus saith Shimei, uh, when he cursed, come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial. The Lord had returned unto thee the blood of the house of Saul. And he's just kind of chewing him out. And he says, uh, and so, so it says this. Um, um, then said Abishai, the son of Zariah, unto the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take his head off. And I, he spiritualized it, right? I pray thee, let me take his head off. <laughs> Now, pray means to ask, but, uh, but it's funny. Uh, just let me go over there and take care of business, right? But he was by the king's side. In 2 Samuel 21, verse 15, it says, Moreover, the Philistine had war again with Israel, and David went down with his servants with him, and they fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. David's now old in his life, and he's getting tired, right? So here's what happens. And Ishbibinab, how would you like that name for your child? Ishbibinab. And uh, you're going to find out this guy was a freak, okay? <laughs> Which was the sons of the giant, weight of whose sphere uh, weighed 300 shekels of brass, he being girded with a new sword, uh, having to send David. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, secured him. It means to come alongside and to comfort. Uh, smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear in him, saying, Thou shalt no more go to battle, uh, go with us to battle, let thou quench not the light of Israel. Here's what's going on. He's in battle. He's getting tired. He's waxing faint. Now, when you're waxing faint, let me say, you can't holler out for help as easily because you're winded. You don't have time to look, look over your left shoulder or your right shoulder because you're actively fighting somebody. And he gets to this point where he can't fight anymore. So what does he do? Help, anybody. And Abishai's right there. What does he do? He slays the giant. He slays the giant. Now, here's the question. 
Abishai had to be right there by the king to be ready for that. He had to be within ears distance at least to hear that he needed help, uh, sight distance to see that he needed help, to see what the situation was, to be there. And it's a very timely thing because how quick does it take to be killed with a sword? And so whether he said his name or not, Abishai, you know, he had to be there. Here's a question. Would the king call for you? Are you close enough? Are you within ear's reach? Are you, within, are you close enough to the battle to see what's going on? Would the king call out for you to say, hey, can I count on you to come take care of this? Can you slay this giant? He was close to him. It's interesting is Ishbibinab, part of his name, it means pride. Abishai, the name means grace. David had to humble himself to receive grace to conquer pride. I can't do this alone. I need help. I need help. Abishai was more concerned with the king than himself. I'm just going to give you the summary of the next ones. Benaiah, he was no ordinary soldier. He struck down two of Moab's fiercest men. He went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He took down this huge Egyptian. Uh, it talks about he was, a, he was a great or a goodly man. That meant he was, he was very large is what he was talking about, probably over seven feet tall. And, uh, and he took him with, killed him with his own spear. By the way, how big would a spear be for a seven-foot-tall man? <laughs> it's a big spear to pick up, right? The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 11, it talks about how he slew the Egyptian man of great stature, five cubits high, and in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like a weaver's beam, and it went down to him in the staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. I mean, these were some, some pretty intense guys. He met the worst enemies in the worst places under the worst conditions. He fought in a pit. He fought in the snow, yet he won. He was a loyal servant to the king. No matter the situation he found himself in, he was going to serve anyway. I find myself in this tough situation, this tough place. I never thought I'd be here. I'm going to serve God anyway. I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. And the last three were unnamed. I believe it was probably Joab was one of them. He went with the other mighty men that was not mentioned. And it says that the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now there to the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto thee the people, how, how many soever there be, an hundredfold, the, the eyes of the Lord may the king see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captain of the host. And Joab, the captain of the host, went out from the presence of the king and numbered the people of Israel. If you know the story, when David numbered the king, people of Israel, it was a great sin against God. God said, no, you're going to trust in me, not in your strength, not in your numbers, not in your abilities. You trust in me. When he went out to number the people, this was a pride thing. He was saying, look what I've got. Look at how great my kingdom is. Look how vast it is. And God, if you remember, sent a plague. He actually gave David three options of what his punishment would be. And he said, you know what? I'm going to let you choose God. So he sent a plague and, and tens of thousands of the nation died because of David's pride, David's sin. But you know what Joab was? Joab was a counselor. A mighty man that God had put next to him. And he warned him, David, you don't need to do this thing. You know, sometimes a leader needs some counsel, some help. But being willing being willing to share your perspective and being willing to share where you've come from and where you're going and what you're about. You know, there are a lot of men in David's army, and it's interesting is that these men stood out, and I think, what made them different from the rest? They each have a tremendous spiritual truth attached to them, but you know, it all came back to this. They loved their king. They loved their king. In the Christian life, uh, uh, how far will your love for God take you? How far is your commitment? Folks, do you weep over the sins of our nation? Do you weep for your children? Do you have some conviction and some, some passion? As we, as we have the answers and we have truth, what are we doing with it? You know, as we consider this week being Veterans Day, I, I want to think about our, us as veterans in the, in the Lord's army. Have we grown? Have we learned some things? Have we, have we gotten accustomed to, are we getting good at battle? Or are we, are we uh, still uh, privates fresh out of basic training? Have we learned a war? You know, I came across a few guys when I was in, they just seemed to never progress in the ranks. At some point, the military just says, oh, it's time for you to go. You're not doing anything. Is that us? Are we learning to fight? Are we learning to war, a good warfare? 
I think about so many in the Bible that God used in overwhelming circumstances. Gideon, David, Jesus himself. You know, Jesus, at the height of his ministry, had, had, uh, had huge groups of disciples, and they came as he was feeding them. And then there's a point where he has 120 disciples. And then there's a point where he has 70 disciples as he sent them out in twos. Then there's a point where he has 40. And then he has the 12. But then he has those that are really close to him, the inner three. And, and, and I just, I, I want to be one of those few. We don't know much about all of those that he named his disciples, but, 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 but think about those few that got to be real near him. We know about them. And, and it's not that I want to be known, but, but, but you know what? God whispers secrets to those who are closest to him. How can I serve you, God? What can I do for you? Is there some kind of covert operation you'd have me do, like get you a cup of water? Is there something that nobody else needs to know about that I could take care of? I believe God's looking for such that would serve him. You don't need to have all the notoriety. You know, one of the difficult things about being a pastor is I'm in front of you every day or every time. And, and just naturally what comes with it is praise, right? Thank you, pastor. That was a blessing. Or, you know, uh, if there's complaints, usually it's not directly to me. But those come through as well. But, but you know what that does? Some of that, because of my public ministry, I don't have the reward that some get to have who labor hours at night in prayer, who get to do some things behind the scenes for the Lord and say, you know, God, it's just a privilege to do this. Jesus talked about those Pharisees that were out there with their public prayers and things. They said they have the reward. It was not really a negative thing. It's just that was their reward. And all the people, wow, look at how they can pray. But just to say, you know what, I love my king. No job is too great. There's nothing too far to push me. And folks, I want to be a good Christian soldier. In time of great conflict, the enemy is out to destroy. In time of great courage, the enemy's weapons uh, was fear. But in times of great victory, through these men, God defeated the enemy. And folks, what a challenge for us. The Bible says in John 15, 13, no, Greater love is no man than this. The man laid down his life for his friends. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. When you and I could not save ourselves, when we were without strength in due time, Christ for the ungodly. Christ died for you. Christ died for me because we were without strength to save ourselves. And folks, that's our captain. That's the one that says, come follow after me. We ought to lay down our lives for others. If you've never been saved, I'd love nothing more than to share with you from the Bible how you can know for sure that Jesus is your Savior. That all your sins can be washed away and you could stand right before a holy and just God. I'd love to share that with you. Well, we have just a moment of prayer, heads bowed, eyes closed.